There is no substitute for the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Each weekday on Enjoying the Journey, Scott Pauley leads us in a brief study of Scripture. Today, on the Weekend Pulpit, we are happy to share a full-length Bible message given through Scott's pulpit ministry. These messages were recorded live in a local church or gospel event in recent days. It is our prayer that the message will be a help to you today. So let's open the Word of God, and we're going to pick up right where we left off tonight, church, in 1 Thessalonians. We were in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4 last night. As a matter of fact, let's review just for a moment. In chapter 1, we, we learned what we're waiting on. What are we waiting on, church? We're waiting on His Son from heaven. In chapter 2, we learned what matters in the end. Ye are our joy and hope and crown of rejoicing souls. That's what matters in the end, eternity. In chapter 3, we learned what we ought to be praying for in light of the soon return of Jesus Christ for increased faith and love and holiness. And last evening in chapter 4, we learned what's next. And we know what's next. Jesus is getting ready to show up. We're looking forward to that. What a great day that's going to be. And now we turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But to get to it, let's read the last verse of chapter 4. You all do understand that chapter and verse divisions are not inspired, right? So when God gave his word, and don't get me wrong, I like chapter and verse divisions. If we didn't have them, we'd all still be looking for 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 right now. They're a great aid in, in Bible study and in reference, but sometimes you've got to read through the chapter division because you can get an artificial break somewhere, and you need to get what old Paul Harvey used to call the rest of the story, all right? So look at chapter 4 and verse number 18. Wherefore, in other words, in light of the fact Christ is descending, in light of the fact the dead are rising, in light of the fact the church is meeting, in light of the fact the saints are abiding, in light of the fact Jesus is coming soon, all this is getting ready to happen, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. We'll come back to those two verses. But let me show you something like bookends on the on the main scripture tonight, would you mark in verse 18, comfort one another with these words? If you've not marked it already, mark it now. Comfort one another with these words. Matter of fact, tell somebody next to you, comfort one another with these words, would you please? Yeah. Tell them with a little more energy and enthusiasm this time. Ready? Comfort one another with these words. The word comfort means cheer, encourage. Now skip down to chapter 5 and verse 11. Look at what it says, chapter 5, verse 11. Wherefore, see if this sounds familiar, Comfort yourselves together, and now he adds something. And what? Edify one another, even as also you do. Oh, I like this. The second coming of Christ should not only be used to comfort, it should also be used to challenge. Isn't that amazing how the same message cuts both ways? Remember, it's a sharp, two-edged sword. So on one hand, it brings the peace of God and hope and comfort, and we say, hallelujah. And on the other side, at the same time, it cuts to the quick and brings Holy Ghost conviction. It's an amazing thing to me how you can preach the same message, the same text, the same theme, the same subject, and on one hand, it wounds, and on the other hand, it heals. It reveals the deep deficiencies in our life, and at the same time, 
It reminds us of how great our God is, and it brings rest and peace. Isn't that just like the Lord? And so we're to comfort one another with these thoughts, and I hope it does bring you great comfort, but we're also to edify one another. Look, I, I had the privilege of preaching these messages to you this week, but I want you to know long after this preacher's gone and long after you've forgotten my sermons and long after this meeting is just a memory, you ought to be speaking to one another consistently about the fact Jesus is coming back and encouraging one another to keep pressing forward for the Lord. See, people have this crazy notion that all the exhortation comes from the pulpit. Friend, I'm just going to tell you, a lot of the exhortation in the local church does not come from the sermons. It comes from the saints. There have been a lot of church services that I was in that I do not remember what the preacher preached. Let's just be honest. How many of you would say you've been in at least one church service in your life? Now, I'm sure it wasn't your pastor's sermon, but you've heard some sermon and you don't remember what was preached. Would you raise your hand? Yeah, I've done it many times. Some of them, I was doing the preaching. That's really bad, you know. <clears throat> I mean, I've had that happen before. I don't even remember what I preached. But the reality is, many of those meetings that I don't remember what the preacher said, you know what I do remember? Some old saint of God putting their arm around me and saying, just want you to know I love you and praying for you. I'm telling you, there's something to this edifying one another. And sandwiched between these two thoughts about comfort and edification, you have these 10 verses that begin chapter number 5. And here's the way they begin. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Does that sound familiar to anybody, the times and the seasons, the times and the seasons? Now, don't, don't lose me now. Stay with me. Hold your place in 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll be right back, taking a quick detour, run back to Acts chapter number 1. Let's compare Scripture with Scripture for just a minute. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse number 7, because remember, Jesus was nearing the ascension, departing from his original disciples, and they had a lot of questions. <laughs> you know, people think preachers should have all the answers. The older I get, the longer I serve, and the more I study the Bible, I'm just going to tell you tonight, the more I realize I don't have all the answers. In fact, I keep discovering questions, and I think, I think I'm just starting to figure out what some of the questions are. But if you think you don't have it all figured out yet, relax and join the club because the original disciples didn't either. They just spent 40 days with the risen Christ, and they still didn't have it all figured out. And look at verse number 7. Jesus says to them, he said to them, it is not for you to know. There's some things God doesn't want you to know. Everybody lift your head and look at me just a minute. You don't want to go beyond Scripture, and you don't want to fall short of Scripture. We want all the Word of God, all the will of God, nothing more, nothing less, which means, look, search the Scriptures, learn all you can, but accept this, there are some things we just don't know because we're not God, and we've got to leave that in God's hands and trust that God has it all under control, and someday we'll understand it better by and by. Look at the verse again. It is not for you to know, what's this expression? The times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. It's powerful, isn't it? He said there's some things only the Father knows. You're close. Go on back to Matthew just for a second, just real quick. Go back to Matthew chapter number 24 because Jesus had already taught them something like this. They should have known this already. Look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 36. After telling them so many certainties, so many things they could count on, things like verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And I'm sure they're all nodding their heads and, oh, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. He turns right around in Matthew 24 and verse 36 and says, but, 
of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. He said there's some things not even known in heaven. Do you think if they're not known in heaven, they're going to be understood on earth? So just accept this. There are some things we do not know. Now go back to our passage. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5 because this is, this is so beautiful. In verse number 1, he tells them what they don't know. He said you don't know when the Lord's coming. You don't know the times. You don't know the seasons. You don't know God's calendar. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And then he turns right around in verse 2 and says, for yourselves know perfectly. Wait a minute, I'm confused. You know what he's saying? He's saying there's some things we don't know, and there are a few things we do know. You know what I've discovered? That more and more when you have questions, when there's lack of clarity, watch this please, always go back to what you do know for sure. My pastor gave me some good advice years ago. Would you like to know what the good advice was? He said this to me. He said, Scott, don't preach what you don't know. How many of you think that's really deep and profound? And it's helped me. And people think, well, that preacher, he really knows something. No, he only talks about what he knows. And there are a lot of things I don't know. And I, I'm saying this to you up front for a reason tonight because there are some prophetic things that I, I haven't quite wrapped my mind around. I, I've studied Daniel and Revelation alongside one another and, and studied my way through Revelation, taught through Revelation, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm just being right up front, I don't have all the answers. And if anybody tells you they do, I wouldn't listen to them. Because Jesus said there's some things that are still a mystery. And so there's some things on the prophetic timelines. Everybody wants you to tell them all the details. I don't know all the details. That's in God's good knowledge and hand. But here's what I do know. I know there are a few things for sure that Jesus has told us. And so tonight, for a few moments, we're going to make us a list. Would you like to have a good list that you can walk away with tonight? And you can not just know something. You can have something ready to repeat to somebody else. And across the top of your paper, I want you to write this down. Here's what we do know. I'm going to talk to you tonight on what we do know. Not what we don't know. Here's what we do know. You know, preachers are, are a little bit like reporters. At least they're supposed to be. Reporters today give too much commentary, you know, their idea and what they think and how they feel about it. And every time I listen to somebody do that on the news, I think, stop it. I just want the news. Let me figure it out for myself. Just tell me the facts, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Amen, church? Well, I want you to know that's what preachers are supposed to do. Preachers aren't supposed to just tell you their idea on everything. They're supposed to tell you the truth of the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit be the great interpreter and applier to your heart. The Lord knows a whole lot better how to say things than preachers know how to say things. And so tonight, I'm not going to try to fill in all the blanks and tell you everything. In fact, the reality is the Thessalonians had a lot of questions they weren't clear on. Why do you think there's a second Thessalonians? Because there was question, there was confusion, there was, there was some uncertainty about some things. But, but wait, here's what we do know. Look at verse number 1. But at the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Number 1, here's, here's what we do know. Number 1, we know Christ is coming suddenly. We don't know when he's coming, but we know when he does come in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. He's coming suddenly. Matter of fact, on the last page of your Bible, Revelation chapter 22, read it on your own time. Not once, not twice, three times. He says, behold, I come. Anybody know the next word? Quickly. Somebody said, well, he said that 2,000 years ago. He, he must not be too quick about it. 
No, no, the word there is not a word of, of time as far as at what juncture or generation he's coming. It's a word that describes how he's going to come. Look, when he comes, there's not going to be any time for you to make things right with God. There's not going to be any time for you to get your family saved. There's not going to be time for that. No, no, because when he comes, he's coming just like that. He's coming instantly. He's coming quickly. He's coming as the thief in the night, the Bible says. This is thought-provoking. I've been studying a little bit about this phrase. Look at the phrase in verse 1, the times and the seasons. It's used a handful of times in Scripture, first times in the Old Testament, but you find it woven through the Bible, the times and the seasons. You ever wonder why God uses that phrase, the times and the seasons? I used to read it, honestly, and I thought it was just the same thing, times and the seasons. But it's not the same thing. If it was the same thing, he wouldn't use both words. How many of you believe the Holy Spirit is very particular about his words? So the times and the seasons, what's the difference between the times and the seasons? I'm going to show you. Watch this, please. Time is linear. I'm, I'm living in time. Anybody else living in time? How many of you lived on a schedule today? Yes? How many of you got a schedule or some appointment tomorrow? How many of you don't care? Would you raise your hand? I see some of you just looking at me like you don't know what a calendar or a clock is, but I think we live on time. Like, I know what time I got up to preach, and I know about what time I'm going to be finished tonight. And all God's people said, Amen. That's right. You don't know what time that is, but I've got an idea in my mind. We live in time. I live by schedules. I mean, I traveling all the time. You live, you live by time. Why? Because we are creatures of time. God made time before he made man. Then he dropped man bloop, right in the middle of time, which means we mark life by birthdays and anniversaries, and we live in time. Look, time is on a line. It has a past, it has a present, and it has a future. Can I just remind you something about God tonight? God doesn't live in time. Time lives in God. God holds time in the palm of his hand. You know why that is? Because God is the everlasting God. He's the eternal God. Would you like to know his name? His name is I what? Am. When is it? Yes. He's in the everlasting now. He's, he's in the past and the present and the future all at the same time. Somebody says, explain that to me, preacher. Good luck. Because my little pea brain can't. Can't fathom that. Our little finite understanding can't understand an infinite God, but that's the reality. And by the way, that helps you interpret a whole lot of things in Scripture about salvation and the work of God and the future and all of that. Look, God's in the past, present, future all at the same time. He is in eternity. So watch this, please. When he says the times, that is, that is life and this worldview from our vantage point, from, from an earthly perspective. But, oh, don't please don't miss this. God deals with man not in times. God deals with man in seasons. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. See, God's working in the seasons of life. He set the world in seasons. We have four very distinct seasons of life, and every season's important, and every season gets the earth ready for the next season, and the times fall in the seasons. Watch this, please. You are seeing the times of your life. And they're going by. The birthdays are racing by. And the anniversaries are racing by. And the, and the 50th celebration is racing by. We're on to the 51st now. But watch this, please. God is viewing your life and time and this world from a totally different vantage point. From heaven's perspective, everything looks different. He is working in the seasons of this earth. May I tell you, you may know what time it is, but you have no idea what season it is. 
You have no idea when the next season's going to start. I mean, honestly, we thought spring was going to be here already, and then snow shows up. Isn't that right? And then we think, well, we're back to winter, and suddenly spring shows up again. You, you can't predict when the season starts and when the season stops. Why is that? Because the seasons are all in God's control. And I want you to know God is at work in this world. He's never been early. He's never been early, not a single day, and he's never been late. But you can be sure of this, right on time, Jesus is coming suddenly. And here's what we know. We know that Jesus is coming suddenly. Look at verse number 2 with me, would you please? The Bible says, Yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord, so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Here's what we know. We know, first of all, Jesus is coming suddenly, and we know, secondly, the world's ready. The world's ready. How many of you ladies have brought a child into this world? Would you raise your hand? Us men, you know, we just, we get to be there sometimes, but you do all the work. And there is that moment. I remember Tammy saying to me, I think, I think it's time. I think, I think we're there on the threshold. Everybody look at the verse we just read. That's the illustration the Lord uses because it works in every generation and every part of the world and every language can understand what it means. Travail upon a woman with child. There's a moment where she's delivered of that child. There's a moment where the child comes forth. Watch this, please. And he said there is a, there is a moment getting ready to happen, and everything to this point in human history has been getting the world ready. And I want to tell you, based on that verse, the world is ready. Because look what the world's message is when the time comes. What's their message? Peace and safety. Turn on any news outlet right now. You know what everybody's pleading for? Peace and safety. You know what everybody's searching for? Peace and safety. You know what some people are, are saying that they can provide? Guess what? Peace and safety. Watch this. When peace and safety becomes the mantra, the, the motto, the, the message of the world, watch please. At that moment, Jesus says, that's the very moment the whole stage is set for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, church, do you believe Jesus came right on time the first time? Oh, yes, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. I want to tell you, as surely as he came right on time the first time, he's coming right on time the second time. Here's, here's what we know. Christ is coming suddenly, and the world is ready. Here's a third thing we know. Look at verse 4, but ye brethren, and not in darkness of that day should overtake you as a thief. You're all the children of light and the children of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are the day, be sober. I've marked in my Bible in verse 4, darkness, and in verse 5, light. In verse 5, day, and in verse 5, night. In verse 7, night, night, and in verse 8, day. Do you see the great, the great division? Light never becomes darkness. Darkness never becomes night. It never becomes light. And watch this. God says he is light. In him is no darkness at all. And every man, woman, and boy and girl on this planet belong to two, one of two kingdoms. They are either children of light or children of darkness. That's it. Here's what, what we know. As surely as I know that Christ is coming suddenly and the world is ready, I also know, by and large, the church is sleeping. It's sleeping. 
People ask me almost every week, well, preacher, you're in a lot of churches. What are you seeing? And they want to know about trends and all that kind of thing. Let me just tell you, let me get cut right to the bottom line tonight. The number one thing I'm seeing is most of God's people have gone to sleep on Jesus. We are, in the words of one of my old uh, friends who's in glory now, we're sleeping through the harvest. You ever think what the last day's church is going to give an account for at the judgment seat of Christ? I want you to chew on that just a minute. I want you to imagine that we're the last believers to live on this planet, and these are the last churches and the last opportunities for the advancement of the gospel and the salvation of souls before the trumpet sounds, and we meet God at the judgment seat and have to give an account for what we did for the cause of Christ in this generation. And by and large, we have so lowered our expectations and shifted into neutral, and we're coasting along saying, well, you know, Jesus is coming soon. We're just going to hold on to the Lord comes. God didn't tell you to hold on to the Lord comes. God said, charge the gates of hell. It is time for God's people to get off the bench and get in the game, to get out of the, out of the tent and get back on the front line for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is time for the church of the living God to awaken from sleep and rise from the dead and see how God can use them in this generation. Look at verse number 8. He says, if you're of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helm of the hope of salvation. It's a great cross-reverence to the Ephesians 6 passage and the spiritual warfare. It is spiritual warfare. There's a battle going on. And I love the, the little trio here, the, the trinity of graces. Do you see them? The faith, the love, and the hope. They keep showing up together all, all the way through the Word of God. Faith, hope, and love all together. But did you ever notice that he mentions here that the helmet, which in Ephesians 6 is called the helmet of salvation, is here called the what of salvation? The hope of salvation. You know, this used to puzzle me, Pastor. I would study that spiritual warfare passage, and it always puzzled me why the helmet wasn't first. Because I used to think, well, that means you, you get saved. And don't get me wrong, you better get saved. But that actually is not what the helmet is talking about. The helmet is not just saying, I know I'm saved. Look, please, look at the verse carefully. The helmet here, this is powerful, is the hope of salvation. Hope is for something future. Watch this, please. The Christian soldier is only going to endure hardness and advance the cause and take his stand if he's living every day in light of the fact that any moment he's going to see the captain of his salvation. This is not a past tense salvation. Praise God. It's a future tense salvation. It's the fulfillment, the culmination of that salvation which the Lord has promised to us. It is time for some of God's people to wake up and get up and dress up and put on the helmet of the hope of salvation and live every day thinking, today could be the day Jesus comes for me. Here's what we know. We know that Christ is coming suddenly and the world is ready and the church is sleeping. I'll tell you something else we know. We know, look at verse 9 and verse 10 with me, would you please? For God hath not appointed us to wrath, can we say amen right there, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, that means if you're dead or alive, but if you know the Lord, we should live together with him. There's those two words again, with him. Would you write this down? Here's, here's what I know. I don't know everything, but I know this. Christ is coming suddenly, the world is ready, the church is sleeping, and believers are not going to see the wrath of God. They're not going to see the wrath of God. 
We talked about this some already on the Lord's Day, so I'll not belabor the point. But let me tell you why believers will not see the wrath of God. You ready for this? Because Jesus already took the wrath of God for them. So if our Lord has already taken our wrath, then friends, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not going down. I'm going up. I'm not, I'm not looking for something bad. I'm looking for something good. I'm not looking, listen to me, please, for the wrath of God to come. I'm looking for the salvation of the Lord to come. Matter of fact, there's a great contrast. Look at, look at the verses. There's a great contrast between the hope of salvation in verse 8 and the wrath of God in verse 9. Lost men are looking for the wrath. Saved men are looking for the hope. Here's what we know. Believers will not see the wrath of God. Now turn the page and come to 2 Thessalonians, and don't get too nervous. We're going to go quick, all right? Somebody said, another whole book? Well, it's just an extension, all right? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Hey, look, you remember when we started our study, they were having a hard time? Guess what? They're still having a hard time. Matter of fact, they may be having a harder time in 2 Thessalonians than they were in 1 Thessalonians. It's all right. Keep reading. Look at verse 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Oh, I like verse 10. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Here's what we know. Would you write down the fifth thing? Here's what we know. We know someday God's going to make every wrong right. In fact, I've marked in my Bible in verse 5 the righteous judgment, and in verse 6 a righteous thing. Let me just ask, how many of you know there's a lot of wrongs in this world right now? Let me ask you a different way. How many of you have ever been wronged? Would you raise your hand? How many of you ever wronged anybody else? Yeah, the world's upside down right now. I'm going to tell you something. When the Lord comes, he's going to make it all right. There's so much injustice in our world. In fact, the pastor and I were talking about it. I can get pretty aggravated. And maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but I can't listen to too much news because after a little while, I get so annoyed, I just want to fuss all the time. Can I let you in a little secret? Parenthesis. Your flesh isn't any better than their flesh. So to live annoyed and aggravated, worked up all the time, in the words of Paul, to you who are troubled, rest with us. Find your rest in this. The Lord is going to make everything beautiful in his time. Isn't that going to be a wonderful thing? Oh, what else do we know, preacher? Well, look at chapter 2, verse number 1. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him. I wish I had time to go into this, but the actual grammar of that verse, there's two nouns there. You see the coming of the Lord and our gathering? There's one article. You know what it indicates? It indicates that there's two parts. Here's what we believe. We believe the Lord comes first in the rapture to take us to be with him, sets in motion a seven-year tribulation on earth, at which time we're at the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then we're coming back with him to this earth. That's when he doesn't come in the clouds. His feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives, and the mount is going to just open up, make a huge valley. I'm telling you, it's going to be an amazing thing. That's the revelation. So there's two parts. There, there is our gathering, and then there is his coming. There is the rapture, and there is the revelation. And refers to both of them here. Look at verse 2, that ye be not soon shaken in mind. 
or be troubled. There it is again. Don't be troubled. By the way, those words are interesting. The word shaken means a sudden jolt. You ever have a jolt like, wow, that was a shock. Boom. But you know what the word trouble means there? It means to be continually upset. He said, some of you are living in shock right now, and some of you just continually worked up. You know what they were worked up about? Somebody had told them that Jesus had already come and that they were living in the tribulation and that they had missed the rapture of the church. How many of you think that would work you up just a little bit? By the way, a little side note, this is really interesting. There's only one reason why the Thessalonican church would have been shocked and troubled thinking that they were already in the tribulation. You know why they would have been shocked and troubled? Because Paul had taught them that they wouldn't be there for it. And it's my conviction that the Apostle Paul is coming full circle back to what he'd already taught them in the presence to say to them, look, please, we're not looking for tribulation. We're looking for the rapture of the church. Don't, don't be shaken and don't be troubled. Look at it. Neither by spirit nor by word nor by letters from us as at the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. Been a lot of conjecture recently about the falling away. I've heard preachers preaching, we're in the great falling away. I don't know all of that. I think there are many seasons of falling away in the history of our world, and there's no question we're living in one of those. I think personally this refers to a final rebellion that's going to take place on the earth, and I don't intend to be here for that. If you think this falling away is bad, I want you to imagine when the whole world just rejects Jesus and rejects the truth. Don't want anything to do with it. Believe a lie and are damned. That's what the Bible says. We're going to see it in just a minute. That day is coming. I'll give you one little word of encouragement. I've had people say to me, well, preacher, in this, in this great falling away time, I don't think we could ever have a great revival. Hogwash. Even in the tribulation age, when the greatest falling away takes place, there's going to be 144,000 flaming Jewish evangelists preaching, and there's going to be a whole lot of people coming to the Lord. And I tell you that there can be a great falling away and a great awakening going on at the same time, and very often that has happened in history. So don't tell me that a season of rebellion precludes God's sin and revival because when God said that evil men and seducers would wax worse and worse, he never said that his gospel would wax any less and less. Look at it. Except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed. What man of sin? We're all sinners. No, no. This is the son of perdition, literally the son of the devil, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Here's what we know. Here's what we know. I can't tell you who the Antichrist is. I have no idea. But here's what we know. Would you write this down? Number six, the Antichrist is coming. Now, there's a spirit of Antichrist, First John tells us, is already at work in this world. So it shouldn't be any surprise that some person of Antichrist is going to stand up trying to take the place of Christ, sitting in the place that only Christ is worthy of, in the holy place, in the temple. But that day is going to come. By the way, how many of you, honestly, years ago when preachers would preach on prophecy, you'd hear things and say, I don't know how that's ever going to happen. And now, suddenly, it's starting to be really clear. How many of you have had that experience? I mean, seriously, all this talk about buying and selling and, and the mark and all that kind of thing, I used to think all that as a kid and think, I don't see how that's ever going to happen. That doesn't make any sense. And now I'm like, that makes perfect sense. Somebody said, is the mark here, preacher? Is the Antichrist here? No, Thessalonians, the day of Christ 
is coming, but it's not at hand. It hadn't happened yet. It is going to come, but I'll tell you what is going on in our world. The world stage is being set at this moment for the appearance of the Antichrist. No doubt about it. We were talking a little bit earlier today. I'm praying for the people in Ukraine. How many of you are praying for the people in Ukraine? I'm praying for believers there. There are a lot of believers in that country. Did you know that's one of the big missionary-sending countries in that part of the world? There's a lot of preachers in Ukraine, a lot of churches in Ukraine. You ought to pray for them. I've been praying for their president. But this morning I heard on the news somebody's written a song about him now. Anybody hear that today? They've written a song about him now. And the title of the song is, Can One Man Save the World? My first thought was, that man has already come to earth. He's the God-man. Yes, one man can save the world, but it's not the Ukrainian president or our president or anybody else. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. But it dawned on me how easy it's going to be for some world person, personality, to suddenly attract the applause and the accolades of men, and people say, we think that's the Savior. That, that's the man who can bring peace and safety. The Antichrist is coming, friends. Oh, but that's not all. That's not all we know. Keep reading. Look at verse number 6. And now you know. There it is. He keeps saying, you know, you know, you know. If you don't know, it's your own fault because God wrote it down in black and white. And now ye know what withholdeth. He said, something's holding it back. That he might be revealed in his time. He said, the Antichrist is going to be revealed. That's going to happen. But right now, something's holding it back. And I love this. Thank you for telling us this, Lord. Verse number 7, he tells us what's holding it back. It's actually not a thing, it's a person. Look at verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. How many of you know the mystery of iniquity is already working in this world? But keep reading. Only he, not an it, not a thing, not a force, not a group, he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That word letteth is an old English word we don't use much anymore, but it means to hold back. Like the dam holding back the flood tide. Watch this, please. There's only one person holding back the flood tide of iniquity on this planet. You know who it is? It's the Holy Spirit of God. And there's going to come a day the dam's going to break. You think it's bad now? They're talking about violence in the city streets and uh, all that's going on across our country. And people say, I've never seen it any worse. I'm going to tell you something. It's going to get a whole lot worse. You, you imagine you imagine what this world's going to be like when the church is gone, when the salt and light is gone, when the restraining work of the Holy Spirit is removed. I mean, the Holy Spirit's gone. The Holy Spirit's going to be working in the tribulation just like it did in the Old Testament age. How do you think people are going to be saved? The Holy Spirit doesn't, listen, please. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. The Holy Spirit doesn't just come and go. But we're living in a special age of the Spirit where it dwells every one of us. And so here's what we know. Would you write this down? We know that not only is the Antichrist coming, but the Holy Spirit is restraining. And there's going to come a day that the restraints are going to be taken off. By the way, one little interesting footnote here. If the Holy Spirit has to be removed, his restraint has to be removed in this world, then one of two things has to happen. Now think through this with me just a minute, church. One of two things has to happen. Either the Holy Spirit has to leave all of us or we have to leave with him. And best I can tell in the Bible, when I got the Holy Spirit, I got the Holy Spirit sealed to the day of redemption. He's not leaving me. He promised he would never leave me, and he would never forsake me, and he'd be with me to the end of the world. Amen to that. So wait a minute. If the Holy Ghost is not going to leave us, praise God, it means we're getting ready to leave out of here. 
The Holy Spirit through the church is restraining all of this from taking place. In some moment, God's going to take the cuffs off and let the devil have his way. Look, people talk about, excuse me, hell on earth. They've never seen hell on earth, but that's exactly what the tribulation age is going to be. Man's going to get his way, and then the devil's going to get his way. And I'm going to tell you, when the devil has his way with this planet, you've never seen anything like it. And praise God, if you're saved, you won't have to see anything like it. Here's what we know. Let's review. Christ is coming suddenly. The world's ready. The church is sleeping. Believers are not going to see the wrath of God. God's going to make every wrong right. The Antichrist is coming. The Holy Spirit's restraining. And number eight, the Lord's people are on the winning side. Look at verse number eight. And then shall that wicked be revealed. See the capital W? That's, that's the wicked one. It's not a thing. That's a person. Whom the Lord, oh, I love this, shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Don't you love how after all this description of the, the son of perdition, the man of sin, the wicked one, God says the Lord's just going to show up in the end and just with a word, he's going to put him down. I've heard preachers preach, you know, we're coming back with him and we're going to make war. Read that passage very carefully. When you come back with him, you're going to be dressed in a white linen gown. How many of you think that sounds like warfare clothes? You really think the Lord's going to need us to fight? Friend, we're going to be worshipers and spectators as we watch the Lord do his business. We're just going to stand off to the side and sing his praises while one word from our great God is going to bring the devil to his knees. With a word, he created the world, and with a word, he will bring judgment to the world. And I don't know about you, I sure am glad I'm on the winning team. Here's a ninth one. Keep reading. Look at verse 9. Even him who's coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Everybody wants to see signs and wonders today. Well, the devil can do them too, so be real careful. With all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Would you write this one down? Here's what we know. Many will reject the truth and believe a lie. See, when you say no to light, you get darkness. When you reject truth, you start believing lies. I mean, look at our world right now. Have you ever seen so much insanity in your life? Everything's backwards. It's been puzzling to me. I mean, honestly, like all common sense has been lost. Would you like to know why that is? Because there's a miserable insanity to sin. Why do you think the prodigal had to come to himself? Because watch, please, when you start going down that road and saying no to God and no to truth and no to light, after a while, you believe anything. It never gets better on its own. It gets worse and worse and worse. So watch this. There will be people saved in the tribulation age. Oh, yes. Read, read the Scripture. Matter of fact, many are martyred for their faith and showing up in glory while we're there. Who are these that are coming? These are they who've come out of great tribulation. But it's my conviction that those who have been here on this earth who've rejected Christ and rejected the gospel and said no to the way of salvation are not even going to want to be saved when that day comes because, look, please, they're going to believe the devil's lie. And I don't know what that does to you, but that just makes me think, dear Lord, we got to get everybody saved. We can get saved. we got to get the gospel to people. What's wrong with us having church while the world goes to hell? Here's what we know. One more. Could I read just a little? Just, just let me read a little. I'm almost done. It's the last one, all right? So breathe a deep sigh, all right? 
Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith, but the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Remember I said to you every chapter of 1 and 2 Thessalonians mentions the coming of Christ? Well, here's the final one in chapter number 3. You know what's so funny? He takes them full circle back to the first reference in 1 Thessalonians 1. Everybody remember what we did in 1 Thessalonians 1? It was that waiting on his son from heaven. It was the patience of hope. And guess what we're doing? We're still waiting. But don't miss this in the context. You read with me what I just read? Write this down. Number 10, God's people must be working and waiting. He said, this is not time to sit down and do nothing. This is the time to hold fast. This is the time to be established. This is the time in every good word and work. This is the time to, to be faithful to the one who's being faithful to you. And I love the, the tone of confidence and certainty he ends his writing to the church at Thessalonica with. Listen, I know there's lots of question marks, but praise God, there's enough periods and exclamation points in the Bible for us to know what we ought to do at this time. Yes, there's much we do not know, but there's enough that we do know to live expectantly and obediently until Jesus shows up. The question is not what we know. The question is what we're going to do about it. We're pretty good church sitters, aren't we? With pages full of notes and heads full of knowledge and hearts empty of the passion to make a difference while we can. Coming out of the pandemic, every pastor in America preached on Hebrews 10, 25. And not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. As the manner of some is. That's good. Don't miss the rest of it. But exhorting one another. Remember how we started tonight? Edify one another, comfort one another, exhort one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hey, church, the day's approaching. This is not the time for less. This is the time for more. That's what we do know. Our Father, I pray that the sweet Holy Ghost will take the truth and wake us up. Let the alarm clock ring in our souls tonight, Lord. Shake us out of our lethargy and mediocrity. Change us.
If this Bible message has been used of God in your life, or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit, and don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.